GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's no surprise that the global economy tanked with the first wave of lockdowns last year. But as the world has adjusted, the economic hit of further restrictions hasn't been as deep. The bad news? That's partly because people are moving around more freely. And it's a tricky time to be a field rat in Cambodia. They've long been a delicacy in neighboring Vietnam, so when jobs dried up, many Cambodians took to rat catching as a way to make ends meet. But murine money-making isn't as easy as it once was. First up, though. Today, the New York-based NGO Human Rights Watch publishes its annual report into human rights practices around the globe. It's sobering reading, with a roll call of hundreds of abuses, from the murder of journalists in Honduras, to the persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China, to a litany of war crimes in Yemen and Syria. Bringing the perpetrators of these atrocities to justice has never been easy. Global powers wrangle over who can be prosecuted where, meaning that big transnational tribunals like the International Criminal Court in The Hague are often hamstrung. But there is a ray of light, a new, more flexible way of prosecuting war criminals that's gaining ground particularly in Europe. There's a very interesting trial going on in the little German town of Koblenz in a case uh, against a, a Syrian policeman called Anwar Raslan, who is accused of torturing no fewer than 4,000 people in Syria and murdering at least 58 of them. Zan Smiley is The Economist's editor-at-large. This is an unusual case because it's being held under German law rather than in an international tribunal or indeed in Syria itself. And why is that so unusual? I think it's unusual because it's being held under what's known as universal jurisdiction, which means that a court in one country, in this case Germany, can try somebody for an alleged crime that was committed in quite another country. And what's interesting about that is that uh, universal jurisdiction is becoming much commoner as a device for trying to nail down perpetrators of human rights violations all over the world. In fact, the figures are sort of double what they were about 10 years ago. And so when did this legal principle that war criminals can be prosecuted anywhere, regardless of jurisdiction, come to prominence? I think universal jurisdiction got noticed and sort of began to operate, most famously with the case of Augusto Pinochet, who had been uh, president of Chile and considered himself to be immune under diplomatic immunity. 
He is one of the world's most controversial former leaders, a deadly dictator to some, a patriotic angel in his own words. And was in London in 1998 when a Spanish judge under universal jurisdiction called for his arrest and asked for him to be extradited. And eventually he was sent back to Chile and did face charges of all sorts of heinous crimes. A Chilean judge today issued an order for his arrest to face charges over human rights violations during his brutal rule in the 70s and 80s. And then many other cases since then have followed on and the whole business of universal jurisdiction has gathered pace over the last five or six years in particular. And what about the International Criminal Court, though? Isn't that supposed to be the kind of supreme arbiter in cases like these? The ICC is supposed to be the sort of grandest permanent court in the world for bringing very senior violators to book. But the trouble with that is that there are only two methods for bringing people to the ICC. The first is if the UN Security Council votes in favour, but it's actually only ever done that twice. And the other method is that the government of the country concerned should send the particular person to the ICC. And of course, it's quite unusual for a country to send one of its own to the ICC. However, that has been done, but always in the past by African governments. And of course, uh, this means that nearly all the people indicted have therefore been Africans. And many Africans have come to think that the ICC therefore is biased against Africa. So if the ICC is seen as being biased or or unable to act, is it going to be sidelined by this move towards universal jurisdiction cases? Well, I I think the human rights campaigners generally see the various methods as complementary to each other rather than rivals. And one should add that there's a whole panoply of different types of tribunals whereby there's a sort of mix of different types of law. A very good example of that are the two big UN-backed tribunals, the one for former Yugoslavia, in which all sorts of people, such as Radovan Karadzic... Guilty of the following counts. Count two, genocide. Milosevic, who died during trial, the general Ratko Mladic. And then there was equally a very powerful and significant court dealing with the genocide in Rwanda. And those were both very effective. And then, in addition to that, one should add all sorts of other forums and devices. Perhaps uh, the most notable is the UN Human Rights Council, which is often vilified in the West because the members aren't chosen for their splendid human rights record. And at the moment, for example, include Russia and China. Having said that, the UN Human Rights Council does do a lot of valuable work. It has a sort of system of special rapporteurs and experts who examine particular countries and issues such as extrajudicial executions and so forth. And so they do a great deal of excellent research work, which then can be taken up by other forums and tribunals and courts which have greater teeth. So, in a sense, universal jurisdiction then patches up the holes, uh, strengthens all of the various weak points of the, the other existing courts. Exactly. I think universal jurisdiction is just one of several methods, but it has, 
I think, gathered more pace than the other various devices. One of the leading prosecutors for the tribunal to do with ex-Yugoslavia, he mentioned it as a, an a la carte system, which uh, he cited as the sort of best way ahead, a mixture of all sorts of different courts and legal devices. To your mind, does that make it more likely then that perpetrators of these highest crimes will be brought to justice more often, more efficiently? Well, to be frank, it's very difficult to um, evaluate whether this panoply of laws is causing more potential bad guys to think before they commit their crimes. But my guess is that as there is this sort of build-up, although you're suddenly not going to see a huge instant improvement in human rights I think it should give a number of people pause for thought. And I think it it does stand to reason that there's a much better chance that the worst violators of human rights can be brought to justice. Zan, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Rather than a turning of the corner on the pandemic, in recent months, there's been a return to strict control measures. France went into confinement in November. Italy locked down over Christmas. Last week, England re-entered a national lockdown, and Tokyo and its surrounding areas were placed in a state of emergency. Shutdown societies lead inevitably to shutdown economies. But speaking this morning at the Reuters Next conference, the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, didn't paint a dark economic picture. The Europeans have demonstrated that when, you know, the going gets tough, the tough Europeans can get together, hang together and produce results. She stood by economic forecasts from late last year, despite renewed measures to curtail the spread of the virus. Yes, we've had some negative announcements in terms of lockdown. Yes, vaccination start has been laborious. We had considered that in our forecast, and we have no reasons to believe that our forecast is wrong at this point in time. While the course of the pandemic remains challenging, the course of the global economy seems to be brightening. So the latest round of lockdowns, as you would expect, has hit the global economy pretty hard. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer for The Economist. But the interesting difference with this round of lockdowns, the one from sort of November to today, is that it hasn't had anywhere near the same economic impact as the lockdowns that were implemented in March and April. So back then, the global economy was running at about 20% below capacity, according to some estimates, whereas now the estimates find that it's between 5 and 10%. And there's other data that, that back that up too. So there's this interesting question, which seems to be, why are lockdowns not having the same level of economic damage that they did back in the spring. And and what's the hypothesis on why that is? So I guess the first reason really is to do with perceptions of coronavirus among people. So the questions of fear and, and how much risk people are willing to take. So when coronavirus first leapt into 
public consciousness in February and March, it was an unknown quantity. People didn't really know how it was spread and didn't really know what they needed to do or not do in order to minimise the risk of themselves being infected. So what you had in March and, and April in particular is people really kind of barricading themselves in their homes and not leaving unless they absolutely had to. Of course, what's happened now is that people have come to appreciate the sorts of behaviours that are risky and the sorts of behaviours that are not. So people are much more willing now to be in public space under the current wave of lockdowns than they were in in March and April. What do you mean? How, How do you know that? So there's some very high quality data which Google produce on mobility, basically how much people are moving around in public space. And this shows for most countries pretty clearly that people are much more willing to be out and about now in the current wave of lockdowns than they were in the first wave of lockdowns in the spring. We have more offices that are open than was the case in March and April because people know how to behave in an office while minimising the risk of infection. And I think also you have more people, frankly, who are willing to defy lockdowns and just ignore the rules. And this is now one of these big debates where public health officials are saying, People just aren't taking these rules as seriously as they were. Now, of course, this is clearly not good in terms of the spread of the coronavirus if people are defying rules and and regulations. But it does mean, objectively, that the, the economic hit might be just that bit less severe. And are government policies here that the lockdowns that they impose, for example, contributing to to the changes that we're seeing? Yes. So government is also playing a positive role in helping to reduce the economic hit from lockdowns. And again, this is to do with learning by doing. In March and April, governments tried to basically close everything. And what's happened since then is that governments have kind of learned about what kind of regulations they can put in that both help to contain the spread of the virus, but also don't cause that much economic damage. So the kind of best example of that is directives to wear masks which weren't very common in the first wave of lockdowns, but have now become pretty widespread. And mask wearing has absolutely zero economic cost, or pretty much. What that has enabled them to do is to move away from those more damaging restrictions that really do hit the economy. So now there are roughly 40 countries rather than 160 countries that are forcing schools to close. A lot more countries are saying they're allowing factories to remain open and allowing construction to remain open. So so government has got a bit smarter about how to contain the virus. And presumably so have the businesses that are that are being regulated here. Yes, the so businesses have actually in some industries spent really a lot of money on investing in in technology basically to allow them to continue to be productive and to continue operating even when lockdown is in place. So the best example in a way is is the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry. In March, you'd walk down a high street, say in London, for instance, and most of the restaurants were just closed. Whereas now it's pretty common for restaurants to have adopted pretty ambitious menus that they are delivering to their customers, which means that they can remain open, continue to make money, continue to employ people, even if they're not able to offer dine-in service. But this is just one example. So, I mean, Britain has bought far more laptops this year than it did in the previous year. Companies have given their workers technology that enables them to do their work from home more productively. And so this all adds up to actually making quite a big difference in terms of the economic hit from lockdowns. But that that new level of economic activity can't be entirely even, right? I mean, how does this look in terms of employment numbers? So it is absolutely the case that what you might call the third wave of coronavirus infections is definitely hitting the economy. Employment has fallen, which is really, really kind of dreadful news. And so rich world economies across the world are definitely slowing because of this. 
However, if you look at the level of unemployment, it's still way higher in the US today than it was during the first lockdowns. Of course, it is at the same time far lower than it was a year ago before coronavirus came along. But I think the fact that it is higher than it was in in March is kind of testament to this fact that people have learned somewhat to adapt to this new reality of of repeated lockdowns. And so what will this economic picture look like into the future, into a still uncertain future? Well, I think it means that when governments don't promise again in 2021 to do enormous stimulus packages, as they did in 2020, there'll be a reasonably good reason for that. The economy doesn't need as much stimulus now as it did in March. So that's one thing. And I think it also partly explains why a lot of economists are fairly optimistic about how quickly the global economy can bounce back from coronavirus once the vaccines are are sufficiently widely distributed. Because basically, if economic output doesn't fall by as much as you fear, then you kind of have less ground to make up when restrictions lift. And so in that sense, there's, there's some reason for optimism. Kellen, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Is it even possible to count the total global costs of the pandemic? This week on Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance, my colleagues give it a go. It's looking like a shade over $10 trillion. To hear how all 13 of those zeros were estimated, look for Money Talks later today, wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. In Cambodia, the pandemic has put a serious squeeze on jobs. Last year, half a million jobs disappeared out of a working population of around 9 million. And so quite a few Cambodians are now trying to live off the rat of the land. Many Cambodians who worked in the city have gone home to the countryside, where the major form of employment is farming. But jobs in farming are scarce, wages are dropping. Charlie McCann is our Southeast Asia correspondent. Farmers are no longer earning enough from tilling their fields, which means a lot of them are exchanging their plows for rat traps. For rat traps? In, in what sense? They are catching rats. Rats love to eat uh, root stalks and, and the roots of these rice plants. So they're, they're pests. So if you can catch them, that's a great form of pest control. But it also just so happens that they fetch good prices in neighboring Vietnam, where they're considered a delicacy and tend to be served either either grilled or fried. And so is the catching and the the selling of rats enough to to replace the income that they've lost? In normal times, it would be, but competition is rife, meaning that rat catching is just not as profitable as it used to be. Some villages are seeing a third of locals taking up rat catching. One farmer that we spoke to will catch on a good day about 15 kilos, roughly 130 rats. Um, but whereas he used to get 6,000 riel or you know, $1.50 for every kilo he got, now he makes just two thirds of that. And this slump in prices is being felt further along the supply chain. Business is also suffering because there's less demand from Vietnam, even as supplies of these rats have increased. And why is that? Why is demand dropping? Well, the borders have been closed since March, so it's a lot harder to get these rats to market. Um, Brokers are paying off Vietnamese border guards and smuggling their catch into the country. But, you know, doing that risks fines and imprisonment, so their lives are a lot harder. Another Cambodian catch that we spoke to suspects that the pandemic has made Vietnamese less enthusiastic about eating rats for fear that they harbor diseases. And it's not an unreasonable concern to have. 
A study conducted a couple of years ago in southern Vietnam found that just over half of field rats served in restaurants there uh, tested positive for a raft of coronaviruses. And so what about that health concern? Are people clearly worried specifically about coronaviruses? Well, we went to a restaurant in the outskirts of Ho Chi Minh City, which is famous for serving field rats, and then spoke to a few patrons there. In particular, there was one group of friends who have been going to this restaurant several times a week for years now, and they swore that they had never gotten sick from eating field rat, but they distinguished between field rat and city rats, which they wouldn't go anywhere near because they perhaps rightly believe that um, they might be full of, of diseases. So they would say, if field rat is on the menu, then you're in the clear. And so given chance, would, would you have a field rat? Yeah, sure. Why not? You don't have any health concerns around that. If they've been feasting on rice stocks, then yeah, why not? Charlie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.